Welcome to Lead Time Chats, where you can listen in on unscripted conversations between engineering leaders and other influential folks in tech. I'm Jean, and I'll be your host. Lead Time Chats is brought to you by Range. Range helps hybrid teams check in asynchronously about what matters most. Know what's happening through status updates that pull from tools like GitHub and Jira without scheduling yet another meeting. Checking in with Range creates more focused time for heads down work, all while feeling a deeper sense of connection and belonging with your team. To learn more about Range, you can check it out at range.co. Hi, well, thanks for joining us. The topic I wanted to talk about, and we'll just dive right in, is really the path of the senior engineer. And that could mean different things at different companies, but I think you're really well positioned to talk about it because you've written the book, The Elegant Puzzle, which is about engineering management. And then more recently, your book on staff engineering called Staff Eng came out. And so one thing I noticed you you wrote about was like senior eng is at a lot of companies, the sort of like the place you can just hang out. Like you don't necessarily need to progress or get it promoted in that role. So I'm just curious, like, what is your own experience when you were in that, in that place? So it's interesting. My, my personal experience as an engineer is pretty unusual in the sense that I went into engineering management like pretty early, but basically I was teaching English in Japan uh, and I was writing a ton of my blog. I, I somehow got hired at Yahoo to start kind of the, the next year. And I went in as just like literally knew nothing. And it, like th to the extent of how little I knew about like being a software engineer, I, I got an offer from them. It was like my first salary offer. They were like $90,000 a year entry level. And I was like, great, accepted. And they, the recruiter called me back and he's like, actually, we think the offer's too low. And I, I already accepted it. Like we're <laughs> actually going to give you, we're actually going to bring it up to a hundred thousand because we, this we think we This exact thing happened to me at Google too. When I joined, it was 70 and then it got bumped to 80 before, after I signed the offer letter. This, it, I guess it's a common thing. <laughs> how did you, how did you feel after that happened? I, I mean, I didn't know anything. I was like on the East coast, knew nothing about tech companies. So it's just like, cool. Like, I guess I was going to accept anyways. So <laughs> yeah, pretty, yeah. pretty young and naive and didn't really know how to, uh, yeah. I don't even know that I really thought about it much other than like, okay, sounds good. Yeah. It's funny. I, <laughs> I, in retrospect, it kind of like highlighted, like I just didn't know how to negotiate a job offer. I didn't know. I didn't know, I didn't know what a reasonable salary was. I didn't do any research on like what a reasonable band might've been. I, I just, I, it was my first job, like first non kind of like strange job that at kind of professionally, I just like, didn't know what I was doing. But so they, they give me this offer. I accept it. They, they increase it because they thought I was just, they never assumed someone would negotiate as, as poorly as, as I did, I guess. <laughs> You're like still accepted. <laughs> still, still accepted. I was like, so then, then a start. And, you know, Yahoo didn't really have titles at that point for a lot of the engineering levels. It was just technical Yahoo is what it was called. And it was only once you got to architect, which was kind of the, the fourth role or went into management that you actually got a, a title. So mm -hmm. I was a technical Yahoo, but I, I was like the first level in L1 or whatever. And then some of my peers were kind of L3s, but we, we didn't have any architects on the team I joined. And so everyone was just like a, a technical Yahoo. 
Uh, and so I was there about a year in, I got, I got promoted. I think, um, fortunately, I, I think I definitely knew how to, how to work a lot, even if I didn't know much else. And so that, that was like a, a great opportunity, but also what happened at that point is that Yahoo sold its search business to Microsoft Bing. And so they basically, there was a, a mandate to like not ship anything for a unknown period of time. Mm. And so the team that I was on just like, wasn't, we, we actually finished our, our products kind of the feature complete, like the week before that, then we went into this like contract period with Bing. And so we just didn't know what to do. We started building the V2, but we never mm. launched the V1. And, and actually by the time I left a year later, we, we just like, never got to launch the thing that we built. And then from there, one of my coworkers that I enjoyed working with a product manager named Dosh, he, he went to dig. And so he, you know, it's like, Hey, we're hiring, you know, worst case, you're going to make a quarter of a million dollars if you join big easy and, you know, kind of classic mm -hmm. Silicon Valley um, story that people uh, will, will tell you. And so I accept the offer. Our CEO gets fired the, 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 the Friday before I join on that Monday. But again, like I had already accepted, I was going and, and like the biggest perk, honestly, at that point was not commuting to Sunnyvale every day. Cause I, I was actually mm -hmm. walking like 40 minutes to a Yahoo shuttle, an hour and a half on the shuttle, and then doing that same commute back. So I was commuting, wow. you know, like three, three and a half hours a day. And if it rained, it would like maybe take four and a half hours or something. Cause the one hole is a nightmare. Um, so just like not doing that was this amazing perk uh, of the job in, in the city. And it was like down in Pritchard, what a Ohio. What a different world we live in today, huh? <laughs> I know. Um, did, did you ever go from having a long commute to having a, a short commute? Oh yeah. I mean, I was commuting from Mountain View. When I started at Medium, I was commuting from Mountain View, a drive, park, run to catch the last bullet train, bullet train, you know, like California bullet train, and then get to 4th and King and then walk 15 minutes to get to the Medium office and then do the whole thing in reverse. And then I moved to San Mateo and moved to Berkeley. I'm kind of like circling SF and getting closer and closer. But I mean, this is... I just walk outside, which is great. <laughs> I think the not having And I did that while I was pregnant too. Which oh, wow. Was awful. I was just like walking and smelling fumes and feeling like I was going to throw. And I just get to work and like throw up. It was really bad. Yeah, that, that, that sounds terrible. That sounds utterly awful. But like that, that first like three months after you go from having a long commute to having like a really short commute or, or no commute is just like the, the best three months of your, like your life. Right. And then like <laughs> time kind of like rebalances and you like, you no longer realize you have another like three hours a day, but it's like a, right. a beautiful, a beautiful moment. Yeah. The rel yeah. The relative, the being in that comparative like transition moment is, is yeah, it's a good time. So, so Yahoo went to dig, um, hired as a mid-level. They, they actually, I think humorously enough, again, di didn't know what I was doing. So I, I, at Yahoo, I got like a, a pretty big raise. I think got up to like 113 or something and dig like lowered my salary. And I was like, well, I, I guess I'm going to do it anyway. So then I went and got like undercut on salary again, which is sort of, sort of mm -hmm. funny. Um, just like really pretty, pretty stupid at that point in my career about negotiating. And I went, the CEOs fired the day before I start. Mm -hmm. And they were actually in kind of like year two of a death march to launch this like dig V4. And so mm -hmm. the, the, most of the experienced engineers like had, I, I, I later realized like quit in the six months before I started. So it was kind of this like the people who are like too loyal to the cause for whatever reason to leave were still there. 
and they're like desperately mm. trying to backfill. And so it, it turned like it turns out it's like relatively easy to get promoted to, to senior in, in that case. But actually, I, you know, I moved into management less than six months after I was there. So this is only this is only like two and a half years into my professional career in software. Mm. I, I was in an engine management role. Mm-hmm. And then we had a series of layoffs. And so like I was the only manager left at the company after about 12 months. And so I, I, they gave me a shiny director title because literally they were trying to retain people and then they were trying to make it like an attractive acquisition target. And so having like higher titles, like created the perception yeah. of like some sort of like seniority, but, but really I, I effectively spent no time as a senior engineer and really had an accelerated appearance of a career due to kind of the, yeah. the just like what a, a tire fire um, dig was at, at that point. When you were considering or being offered this move into management, was that a, a choice where you like, oh, I could either do this or take a more technical path? Because that's kind of the path, the path you're talking about now and speaking with a lot of senior engineers, right? I, I think it, it, it's interesting. I, I can talk to that in a couple of different ways. So, so mm-hmm. first, I think that this was a company where there really was no people management happening. Everyone was just trying to ship code and the, the managers were just trying to like align people to ship code. There wasn't like career planning happening. There wasn't you know, like a, a development budget. There was, there was just desperately trying to figure out how to get this like feature, like this, this like launch out the door. Mm-hmm. And so even the managers were, were more kind of like a tech lead or, or something like that. And so the, the first right. product I was first, like the engine manager for the API platform, which was just like basically some, some tornado servers from like the Python ecosystem that was kind of like a proxy to our, our Python backend. And it was like a mm-hmm. team of like three people. We had like a mobile contractor that we had given like a six month commit to. So he was one of the three engineers on the, this like API team was just our iOS developer. Cause they, we didn't have an iOS app to build anymore. So he, he mm-hmm. joined the, the API team and then like two, two other folks, both of whom like left fairly shortly after that. So that was kind of my, my first exposure, more, more of a tech lead role. And I think, mm-hmm. I think they just saw someone who like was willing to kind of irrationally take res- personal responsibility for, for kind of things. In a tire fire. <laughs> and I think that was, you know, it's a strength, I think, to take a lot of responsibility. It's also like a bit of a trap where you kind of end up taking responsibility for like a situation that's like a little bit unsalvageable. And that was the, the beginning of it. But I, I did later, um, you know, go to the CEO, the, the new CEO, the third CEO of my like uh, two, two year period and, and say like, Hey, I really want to go back into the technical path. Mm. Like, I, I don't want to be, I, I, I'm not a manager. I don't know anything about management. Yeah. There's Especially no role it's models only two here. years into your professional career. That feels like you don't want to get siloed and, and never really develop that technical depth. Right. Absolutely. And so, and basically they, they just, didn't have anyone else do to do the, the mm. people manage well and again the amount of people management I was doing is sort of like comically low like I think if I <laughs> now look at what I was doing I, I really I really was doing like some some sprint planning and then trying to like write write code or something like that it, it was it really didn't know what I was doing but it just sort of like structurally the company needed someone in this like director role which mm-hmm. is really again like a manager role at, at best and so right. I just couldn't get out of it, but, but really I did want to go back to it. And like, when I think about career kind of regrets, 
I want to give advice mm-hmm. on this topic to folks. I think don't don't leave the technical role path until you're done doing what you want to do. Because I, I do think it's, you know, Charity Majors has a great piece on like the manager pendulum. Um, engineer pendulum. But I, I think something that that piece kind of doesn't address is that as you get deeper onto one of those two, I think the switching costs do go up. And mm. the kind of the economic rewards of getting deeper on them is, is extremely high. And so yeah. I think it, it's like the, the opportunity cost of switching, I think is actually a lot higher as you get further in your career than, than it, it might appear early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something I, I learned. I, I had gotten that advice from a coach too, like, you know, while I'm not too senior, like kind of learn as much as I can, because that's when people kind of uh, like accept or tolerate this sort of like more junior mindset in a bunch of different areas. But once you're more senior, then it's kind of like, well, that's what you're working on. Um, And of course it depends on the company, depends on your manager, but overall there is that increased cost to to, to switching and, and swinging back and forth. Yeah, absolutely. And so I really, that, that, that's like the biggest thing I like tell people is just like, make sure you're done mm-hmm. before, before you try to switch. I think when you're an entry-level manager or when you're like a staff engineer, you can still switch back and forth a bit. The roles are quite similar. But mm-hmm. if you look at what a um, director does or what a VP of engineering does versus what like a, a principal engineer does, they're, they're like quite different. And it, the, yeah. The, the skills are less transferable than I think folks sometimes think they are. What, what piece of advice would you have for someone who's in this sort of senior engineer role and is contemplating or looking down these two paths of, you know, more management track and more kind of headed towards staff engineer? Like, how do you help them decide which, which path is what they want? I think there's, there's definitely a lot of different ideas I have on this one. Mm-hmm. I, I think maybe I can give some advice about where I see folks who are trying to go into the staff role, where, where they stumble in particular. Mm-hmm. I think that's helpful for folks to think about. I, I think there is the perception that like management is like, you know, soft skills. It, it's like, you know, mm-hmm. dealing with ambiguity. It's, you know, you know, never know what you'll do on a given day as a manager kind of waking up. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, if you stay on this technical track, there'll be like more predictability, more consistency of the work. You have like clearer direction, but, mm-hmm. but actually like my, my lived experience is like the complete opposite of that, where I think for managers, there's a ton of resources at your mm-hmm. company. You'll have like a peer group, almost necessary, like almost certainly you have a peer group of like probably a dozen or at a larger company, like a medium or mm-hmm. a Stripe or something. You'll have like probably like 50 other managers who you can go right. to and be like, Hey, like I had this problem or how did you deal with this? Um, and and like, you get the general company management training as well. Yeah, there's like a people team trying to support mm-hmm. people managers to, to success, right? right? On the staff side, it, none of that, like the people team doesn't really think at all about how do we make like staff engineers or principal engineers mm-hmm. successful. That, that's just like not a problem they think about because it, it's structurally, the, a people team doesn't see like staff engineers as company leaders in the same way it sees people mm-hmm. managers as company right. leaders because- Functionally, it's true in engineering, but in most other functions, yeah, just just doesn't exist. So they they just don't structurally. They just can't think about this problem that much. Right, they're trying to solve for the whole the whole org, and there's management in the whole org. Right, and that there's not these like staff engineer equivalents. Exactly, and so I think the staff engineers actually 
often end up in the spot where like, oh, my manager will be able to, to kind of help me as a staff engineer. And they, they will mm-hmm. to some extent, but most managers have never been a staff engineer. And most mm-hmm. directors have never been a staff engineer. And most VPs of engineering have never been a staff engineer. Right. So, and there are often <laughs> um, far more directors of engineering at a company ratio-wise than there are um, staff engineers. So your peer group's mm-hmm. really small. So people are like, oh, I don't like ambiguity. I, I like having clarity in my work. So I'm going to go on this staff path. I think it blindsided at just like ha- how little structure and support there is when in the actual role itself. Mm-hmm. And how do you, how have you found people to be able to get that support is externally? Yeah, I think there's, there's a couple of different things that I, I found. So first there's like the classic Laura Hogan kind of manager of Ultron. When I interviewed Michelle Boo for staff and she talked about uh, the Frankenstein manager, which is kind of the same idea with a slightly more uh, grisly uh, metaphor. But I think like finding the different pieces that that can be helpful to you. And to your point about going externally, I think going externally is, is incredibly important for these folks in these staff roles. Because I think these people usually are like defining what that even means at their own company. Right. Even companies that think they know what a staff engineer is often don't. And so I think these peer groups, like learning circles like that you can put together, I found that um, people in staff and principal roles have this like immense thirst for kind of like peers and like folks mm-hmm. that a like, community. And so there, there's a lot of openness if you just reach out to folks like, hey, like I want to talk about this or I want to do like a learning circle to, to, to participate. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then I wanted to ask you, like, so you've published your Elegant Puzzle book and you recently published Staff Eng, you know, in the pandemic with a newborn, which I thought was really funny, like it's kind of like you're like the Taylor Swift of Eng management, <laughs> like released two albums. But like, what do you, I mean, how do you think about your, this like non-work work? Like, where do you find the time to do it? What does your week look like? I think, so, so first, I think a really important point, maybe the most important point I would make on the idea of like non-work work or kind of supplemental work is that most of the most successful people you've ever spoken to don't, don't really do this. And so I think in the Bay Area or in technology in general, there, there is such a strong online presence of folks who are uh, doing these like, God forbid, like side hustles or like whatever mm. you want to call them, where they're like churning out content, they're writing a lot, they're like doing a YouTube channel, they're like on Clubhouse, like talking about their deep TikTok. clubhouse thoughts, <laughs> TikTok, whatever. And I think it creates this like competitive pressure to like be there. And I just yeah. think it's so important to like ground this on like the most successful people, you know, don't do any of this and you don't need to do any of this. Like if you don't mm-hmm. want to do it, just please don't. I do have that feeling when I see, I, I start to see eng, eng leadership content on like TikTok or Clubhouse. I'm like, God, I got to do that too. Like, <laughs> I'm just trying to keep my kids alive. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, 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 it's wild. And I, I do think conversely, like, I think if you do do it, it's really helpful, but it's just mm-hmm. one form of, of privilege. And so I think, yeah. you know, pr- privilege is this like universal lubricant that like helps make everything easier in your life. And so like, if you went to Stanford and you have the Stanford degree, people will, like just think you're smarter, no matter what else you do. Um, even if you like try to prove them wrong, they, they will see that degree mm-hmm. and they're like, really smart person. If you have an MBA at some company or some business schools, people will think highly of you and some people hate MBAs. So like not every piece of privilege is like universally applicable, but, but really like if you go work at Google, people like, Oh, super smart works at Google or, and so you just have to figure out like, what are these different ways you can like build privilege? And so 
I went to a really small liberal arts school in Kentucky. There were, I think, six people in my computer science class that went that the year that I graduated. And I, I think that was like one of the, the larger classes. And and no one, no one's ever heard of this. And so when I was, you know, teaching English abroad, I was trying to think about how do I actually like build some sort of privilege so that it's like easier to find these jobs when I, I no one knows what I've done. No one like mm-hmm. respects my program. Like kind of get the right signaling and credibility. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's, it's a shame on some hand that like signaling, mm-hmm. that's a great word, is so important to these processes. But I think we also have to just like recognize like the reality of it that the signaling is incredibly important and then figure out how to like create some of that and I think like writing online the Mm -hmm. books all of these are really speaking at a couple of conferences like just doing a small amount Mm -hmm. of each of these is like this incredibly powerful signaling tool you don't even need to do much of it you don't need to keep doing it but just having like four Mm -hmm. popular posts you've written like two like uh, conference Mm -hmm. talks up on YouTube just a little bit, I think, is is really um, powerful way to kind of accelerate your career if if you want to do it, but you certainly don't have to. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you're not doing it like all the time. And, but I mean, writing a book and you know, writing books is not it's no walk in the park, right? Like, but it sounds like those are things that you know you don't have to do, but it's it's things that you are you are kind of like motivated to do. I think you know, writing a book isn't. I, people have different experiences. I, I kind of enjoyed writing my second book, definitely more than I enjoyed writing my first book. I think my first book, I sort of created a timeline that was helpful for me finishing it, but also that that was sort of like unpleasant to like execute yeah. within. So I definitely regret how I timed that one. And, and I think the one of the joys of self-publishing and the second book I did self-publish is you own your timeline. And you kind of, you own the quality level. And I think that to me was really powerful where Jerry Weinsberg wrote this book called The Fieldstone Method for, for Writing. And it talks about basically mm-hmm. writing where you have energy. And that really appeals to me where I, I like to work on projects as long as they're energizing for me. But like, this is, yeah. this is, this is, this is a hobby. And if yeah. it's not energizing, like, I just want to stop doing it. And the problem with working with the publisher is like, you, you can't, you can't just it's, stop. You, yeah. you have to like keep going with it. And so to me, that's where um, self-publishing was kind of great the second time. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like really genuinely finding this like eng adjacent or eng area stuff that maybe I call non-work work, but stuff that qualifies as a hobby is is kind of how you found ta- found time for it. Yeah, that 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 is that is what worked for me, and I do think the, the experience of releasing a book when it goes well is, I, I think, just like uh, there's a lot of just like endorphin highs to it, mm-hmm. and they kind of keep going. Where I, I, it was really rewarding for me to do it. I, I don't know, I don't know if I really have like another book in me in the next couple of years. Like maybe maybe kind of be a little bit slower on on that one, but I really enjoyed it. it it's it's really cool to have like something that you've created that you can like physically hold that is, is not squirming out of your hands trying to get away from you. So I, I, I really enjoyed it, but I definitely think I could have accomplished the same like career outcomes like faster and more simply than, and even I really think to me starting with a hobby and then like reasoning forward from that and not, it has yeah. been important for just the sustainability for it. I, I've been writing for like over a decade and if I was doing it because I had like a clear business goal or, or something, I, I would have like absolutely given up like probably like nine years ago. Yeah. Cool. 
Well, I have your Staffenge book. I think it's being delivered as we speak. So I'm really looking forward to, to reading it and seeing how I can better support people on my team who are in that senior and staff level. Well, well, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you so much for um, joining me today. Have a good rest of your day. Awesome. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Lead Time Chats. If you'd like to connect, share, and grow with other engineering leaders, join us at leadtime.range.co. Lead Time Community is a space for engineering leaders who aspire to create better working environments for their teams. Hope to see you there.